you be free to start upon your new duties? Oh, well, it is rather awkward, as I do have a business already. What would be the hours? Ten till two. Well, the mornings are quiet, and I do have an assistant. Yes, that would suit me very well. And the money mentioned, four pounds a week. Correct. And the work? Purely nominal. Yes, well, what do you call purely nominal? Well, you have to stay in the office, or at least in the building the whole time. If you leave, you forfeit your whole position forever. The will is quite clear in that point. Oh, I shouldn't dream of leaving. No excuse will avail, neither sickness, business, nor anything else. Here you will remain, or else lose your ability. Oh, no, I am quite clear on that point, but what exactly is the work? It is to copy out the Encyclopedia Britannica. There is the first volume. You will supply the ink, paper, and pen. We will supply this desk and chair. That is not a clip from our current episode, but it sure feels like it could be. It is actually from the 1985 BBC television series The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, the episode based on Arthur Conan Doyle's The Red-Headed League. You can't help but think that Stanley Ellen had this story in mind when he wrote his story, The Cat's Paw, which is the basis for our episode tonight. In both cases, a man gets a job in which his duties appear to be trivial, if not completely a waste of time. And in both cases, there's a lot more to it than that. In Conan Doyle's The Red-Headed League, and spoilers here for anyone who is not familiar with that story, you might want to move ahead about a minute and a half to skip this part. Jabez Wilson, the owner of a pawn shop, possessing a great shock of red hair, gets the position we just heard about in the Red-Headed League, only to discover after some period of time of writing down the Encyclopedia Britannica that the office has closed up. So someone has wanted Jabez out of his pawn shop for a certain amount of time. Here's Jeremy Brett as Sherlock Holmes, explaining things from that same episode. When I heard that the assistant had come for half wages... It was obvious that he had some motive for securing the situation. Yes, but how did you know what his motive was? Had there been a woman in the house, I would have suspected immediately some vulgar intrigue. But when I heard from Mr. Wilson about the acid stain and the pierced ears, I knew that Vincent Spaulding and John Clay were the same person. But why was Clay there? The photography gave you the clue. Exactly. The cellar. He was working on something in the cellar. Something which took many hours a day. For two months on end, he was tunneling. But where to? When I tapped my stick on the pavement in the street that day, I was ascertaining whether the tunnel stretched in front or behind the building. It was in front, towards the bank. When they closed the red-headed league offices, it was a sign they no longer cared about Jabez Wilson's presence. In other words, the tunnel was complete. Welcome to Presenting Alfred Hitchcock Presents, presented by the Ann Arbor District Library. I'm Al Scherzma, and now that we know why Jabez Wilson had his unnecessary position, let's find out why Mr. Crabtree has his. Here's Hitch. Oh, good evening. How did you find me? I specifically asked for an unlisted channel. I'm taking the week off. I wanted a rest from television. If you're one of those critics who thinks that television is frightful, all I can say is you should see it from this side. I've been reading the want ads. A man has a right to look around for a better job. Hmm. 
wanted host for television program. Sounds like a job for me. Must be witty, charming, handsome. Why, this is perfect. Gracious and must be willing to work every week. Apply. Alfred Hitchcock presents. I think I'd better scamper back to the old job. I don't want to miss the show, and don't you miss it either. So here's Help Wanted. First broadcast on April 1st, 1956. Starring John Quaylen and Lorne Green. Teleplay by Robert C. Dennis, based upon the Mary Orr and Reginald Denham adaptation of a story by Stanley Ellen, and directed by James Nielsen. There's a number of things to unpack from that introduction. First of all, the episode aired on April Fool's Day a perfect time for a story in which a man is deceived about his very work, but I suspect that that was coincidental. Secondly, this is the third and last appearance of John Quaylen in Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Remember back in episode 14, A Bullet for Baldwin, when we didn't know who John Quaylen was? Now having seen him in that episode, and in Shopping for Death, and in this episode, I've really come to appreciate him. He's a terrific actor and I'm sorry to see him go. Thirdly, Lauren Green is not yet the big television star that he will become in the 60s and 70s, and the evidence for that is that the opening credits misspell his last name. They spell it like the color, G-R-E-E-N. He spells it with an E on the end. Now, to be fair, Lauren Green's original last name lacked the E. He added it later. And to be further fair, His last name is spelled with the E in the closing credits. Fourthly, we have another Robert C. Dennis teleplay. This is his seventh so far, after Don't Come Back Alive, Our Cook's a Treasure, Guilty Witness, The Older Sister, The Derelicts, and Place of Shadows. He has 23 more, and his next is The Orderly World of Mr. Appleby. Just two episodes from now, episode number 29. But the credits also tell us that Robert's teleplay is based upon the Mary Orr and Reginald Denham adaptation of a story by Stanley Ellen. So what's that all about? Well, essentially, each telling of the story is different enough to almost serve as a separate entity. So Robert's teleplay is not based upon Stanley Ellen's story. It is based upon the previous teleplay, which changes Stanley Ellen's story considerably. Robert Dennis's teleplay uses Mary Orr and Reginald Denham's teleplay as a template, not the Stanley Ellen story. And fifthly, our director is James Nielsen. So who the heck is James Nielsen? James will direct 12 total episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, but this is his first one. He was born in Shreveport, Louisiana. When he was a child, his family moved to New York City, where he eventually got into theater. But in January of 1942, he enlisted in the U.S. Marines, right after the entry of the U.S. into World War II. There, he served two tours of combat duty in the South Pacific, and he was also a war photographer. After the war, he returned to the theater, and from 1948 to 1952, 
worked as a director for the La Jolla Playhouse, a theater that often featured well-known Hollywood stars such as Gregory Peck, Charlton Heston, and Groucho Marx. It was through recognition of his work at the La Jolla Playhouse that he eventually landed television work. He directed over 100 episodes during the 50s, 60s, and 70s of various television series, such as Bonanza, Batman, The Rifleman, Zorro, Ironside, and Adam-12. In his blog at Barebones E-Zine, Jack Seabrook points out that James Nielsen directed 33 episodes of Janet Dean, Registered Nurse, in the 1954-1955 television series. That show's producer was Joan Harrison, and she probably brought Nielsen along with her to her new assignment at Alfred Hitchcock Presents. He joined Disney in the late 50s, and over the next decade directed a number of their films, including Dr. Sin, alias The Scarecrow, one of my favorites when I was a kid, The Moonspinners, Summer Magic, Moon Pilot, and The Adventures of Bullwhip Griffin. These were then shown on the magical world of Disney allowing him more exposure. In 1959, he was nominated for a Primetime Emmy Award for an episode of General Electric Theater entitled Kid at the Stick. He was up against Hitchcock that year for his directing of the Alfred Hitchcock Presents episode Lamb to the Slaughter. Neither of them won. James Nielsen's next episode is just two episodes ahead, The Orderly World of Mr. Appleby, episode number 29. And James Nielsen died in 1979 at the age of 70. The episode opens in the apartment of Mr. and Mrs. Crabtree. It looks like sort of your classic 1950s middle-aged to elderly person's room with a fruit bowl on the table and a big painting of flowers up over the fireplace. Mr. Crabtree is applying for jobs, and he reads his latest letter to his wife. Dear sir. Regarding your advertisement in the help wanted section of the news of this date, if the position has not been filled, I should like to present my qualifications for your consideration. My age is 52 as of last October. I have been married for 27 years, have no family. My health is excellent. That's a blessing. Now, now, Laura, we're going to have you up and around in no time. Just as soon, uh, uh, well, to go on. For 31 years, I was employed by the firm of Stone Baker, the accounting and audit company, in the capacity of clerk. I believe my record for attendance and punctuality stands alone. The termination of my services was due entirely to my age. A short-sighted policy, which I feel certain already has been regretted by the individuals at fault. Now, dear, you mustn't excite yourself. That's all over and done with now. It doesn't do any good to brood over it. I know, I know, Laura, but every time I think of it, that personnel manager telling me I was too old. Too old? Why, I can still do that job better than anybody they can get at the salary they were paying me. It just makes me see red all over again. We're not going to think about that. Oh, you're right, Laura. I just get all excited, and I, I just burn with shame. In 52 years, Laura, was the only time I, I really lost my head. 
I'm going to try something a little bit different this time, and we'll see how it works. And that is to go through the different versions of the story backwards. So we're starting with the latest. We'll move back to Mary Orr and Reginald Denham's version, and then finally deal with Stanley Ellen's story. So it may not mean much to you yet for me to say that in that opening, we see two examples of changes that Robert C. Dennis has made in order ultimately, I think, to make Mr. Crabtree a little more accessible and to explain some of his actions later. And those two things are that his wife, Laura, has some sort of ailment that requires lots of money that they don't have, which explains this odd little sequence here. Now, now, Laura, we're going to have you up and around in no time. Just as soon, uh, 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 well, to go on. Just as soon as he gets a job, is what he is about to say. The second thing we learn is that Mr. Crabtree is capable of losing his temper to a level that sounds like it got rather violent. In fact, Crabtree's very next line is... Makes you wonder sometimes how far you might let yourself go. And if that isn't a plot point, I don't know what is. A phone starts to ring as we crossfade to a hallway. It turns out that Mr. and Mrs. Crabtree live in an apartment where they share a phone with the other tenants, and Crabtree runs out to answer it. Hello? Yes, yes, this is Mr. Crabtree. Yes, yes, I answered the advertisement. I've been considering your letter of application, Mr. Crabtree, and I must say I found it to be an excellent one. Well, thank you, sir. Thank you very much. You'll notice that in the first part of this conversation, we don't hear the man on the phone. Hello? Yes, yes, this is Mr. Crabtree. This is an old tradition, and we're used to it, hearing just one side of a conversation. But all of a sudden, we switch, and we do hear the man on the other end. Yes, yes, I answered the advertisement. I've been considering your letter of application, Mr. Crabtree, and I must say I found it to be an excellent one. Once we do hear him, the camera switches to show him in tight close-up, but it only shows the back of his head. We see his hairline, his ears, and his hat. We can also tell that he's in a phone booth, because there's a sign next to his head that says, you should dial any number with a prefix shown here. Now, this is Lorne Green, of course, and Lorne Green has a very distinctive low voice that contrasts with John Quaylen's higher, sort of quavery voice. So you not only get the contrast in sound, you get the contrast in sight, because when John Quaylen speaks again, now our shot of him is a close-up, only we still get the front of him. We only get the back of Lorne Green. Now, in their short conversation, Lauren Green's character tells Crabtree that he has called Crabtree's previous employer. The personnel manager, while reluctant to discuss the matter, did inform me that when told you were being retired, you attempted to attack him physically. Is this true, Mr. Crabtree? Uh, yes, uh, I'm, I'm afraid it is. I, I don't know what came over me. The terrible injustice of it, I guess... Uh, you see, I desperately needed that job. My wife, she's been ill. It, it, it could never happen again, I assure you. Very well. My secretary will call on you within an hour. Good day, Mr. Crabtree. Again, during this, the camera switches back and forth between Crabtree and Lorne Green, and we see all sorts of emotions run over John Quaylen's face. 
It's really a wonderful acting job. Concern, when he finds out that his prospective employer has called his previous place of business. Anger, resentment, a little bit of guilt. It's all there. And then relief and joy when he finds out that he's getting this new job in spite of what he did before. For his part, Lauren Green's character evinces no emotion whatsoever. In fact, he later says, I envy you, Mr. Crabtree. I deeply envy you. You have emotions. I am entirely devoid of feeling. But we already know this early on. Just because the camera contrasts John Quaylen's expressive face with the back of Lorne Green's head. And now we've learned that not only did Crabtree get angry when he lost his last job, he attacked someone as a result of it. This is also something in only the Robert C. Dennis version. We get a dissolve back to the apartment, and Crabtree is pacing back and forth, waiting for the secretary who was promised within the hour. But apparently it's been more than the hour, and he's wondering if she's going to come at all. He's dressed up a little bit, put on a jacket, and changed his tie. And then, at last, there's a knock on the door. Right before that knock, Laura makes the point that... But isn't it rather strange that someone should come here to interview you? But that gets lost in the excitement of the moment. Uh, won't you come in, please? Mr. Crabtree. Yes. I believe you were expecting me. Yes, I was. Uh, this is Mrs. Crabtree, my wife, Miss... Uh, Brown. Brown. How do you do? I'm happy to know you, Miss Brown. Uh, won't you sit down? Thank you. Miss Brown is dressed in a conservative dress suit. She has a small black handbag on her arm, wears horned-rimmed glasses and white gloves, which she takes off when she sits at the table and immediately puts back on again, and has her hair pulled back in a bun, very 50s professional looking. As soon as she sits, she gets right to the point, and our red-headed league moment begins. Your job, Mr. Crabtree, will consist of preparing confidential reports which must be mailed to your employer. Mailed? But why? Because you will be working alone, in your own office, with no direct supervision and no assistance. You, uh... You, you mean I'm going to be in charge? Miss Brown, I hope I didn't misrepresent my previous experience. You see, I've always held a job as an employee. That has been understood. Now, your office will receive subscriptions to a number of financial journals. You will be supplied with a list of important corporations. Whenever one of these corporations is referred to in the journals, you will make a note of it and consolidate these into a report, which must be mailed at the end of every day. I quite understand, Miss Brown. But uh, to whom do I mail these reports? To the box number you already have, of course. Oh. The office is completely prepared for you. And here are your keys. Well, thank you. Your hours will be 9 to 5 and half day on Saturday. Can you start in the morning? Uh, yes, uh, I think so. Uh, yes, yes, of course. And now, as to your salary. You will be paid $100 a week. Is that satisfactory? Um, <clears throat> 100, uh, well, yes, uh, that's very generous indeed. You will receive your salary every Saturday in cash by mail. And here is the address of your office. Are there any further questions? No, uh, well, yes, I, I'm afraid I don't quite understand the reason for You're not expected to, Mr. Crabtree. Your work is important and highly confidential. The less you know of it, the less temptation there will be to discuss it with anyone. Oh, I wouldn't do that. You can absolutely depend on my discretion. Very well. Good luck. <laughs> 
Miss Brown is played by Ruth Swanson, and I can find very little about her. According to filmifeed.com, Ruth Swanson started her career as a model and ventured into the showbiz industry. But other than that, she's kind of a mystery. She has 18 credits on IMDb. Her first one is in 1941, a film called Louisiana Purchase. And she doesn't have another until 12 years later when she appears in So Big. And then she's done by 1961. Her credits include The Crybaby Killer and The Young Philadelphians, where she's a secretary. Oh, Mr. Lawrence. Yes? I have something for you. Mr. Clayton called from Miami. He'd like you to make the changes in the Bannerman brief and mail it out to him tomorrow evening. Tomorrow? I, uh, I thought tomorrow was Christmas. He said he was sorry, but he's joining the Bannermans on their yacht and he'd like to read it over before he discusses it. All right. Oh, I forgot. He asked me to wish you a Merry Christmas. And she has one other connection to Hitchcock. She's in a small role in The Wrong Man, in which she plays Anthony Quayle's secretary. Oh, good afternoon. Mr. Balistrero? Mrs. Balistrero? This way, please. Mr. and Mrs. Balistrero. Those are the extent of her lines in the film. And that's the extent of my knowledge of Ruth Swanson, except to say that this is her only appearance in Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Now, apparently, $100 a week is a lot of money in 1956, because Crabtree is very happy about it. $100 a week! It's wonderful, but I... Now you can have your treatments, Laura, and after we've saved a little the operation. Oh, it seems too good to be true. <laughs> We never find out exactly what Laura's illness is, but now we've learned that she needs treatments and an operation, and this job will get them for her. So they're very happy, and we're very happy for them. These are two good people, and we want them to succeed. Of course, in order to succeed, Crabtree has to earn the money, and in order to earn the money, he has to go to work, which he does in our very next scene. But before we join him, let's look at Madge Kennedy, who plays Laura. Madge Kennedy was born in Chicago, where her father was a criminal court judge. She planned to be an illustrator, and when the portrait artist and art instructor Luis Mora saw her work, he recommended that she go to the Siasconset colony for a summer. The artists there were divided among actors and painters, and the painters often joined the actors in theatrical performances. Madge appeared in a skit that impressed actor Harry Woodruff, and it wasn't long before she was offered a lead opposite Woodruff in the play The Genius. And she first appeared on Broadway in Little Miss Brown in 1912. Here's a snippet from a review of the time, a reminder that even people who were older in the 1950s were young ones themselves. Miss Kennedy's youth, good looks, and marked sense of fun helped her to make a decidedly favorable impression last night. She appeared in three other plays on Broadway in the 19-teens, including Avery Hopwood's Fair and Warmer, which I have to mention because I'm in Ann Arbor, and Avery Hopwood donated the money for the University of Michigan's Hopwood Awards, given every year to students in the creative writing fields. 
1916, Madge said, I have discovered that one of the best ways to act is to make your mind as vacant as possible. In 1917, Sam Goldwyn signed Madge to a film contract, and she starred in 21 five-reel films, including Baby Mine, Newly Married, Our Little Wife, The Service Star, and Dollars and Cents. In 1921, with her contract with Goldwyn ending, she returned to the New York stage so she could be close to her husband, broker Harold Bolster. In that same year, Haywood Brown described her as the best farce actress in New York. And in 1923, she starred opposite W.C. Fields on Broadway in Poppy, where she had top billing. She also returned to the silent films in the mid-1920s. But unfortunately, in 1927, her husband, Harold, died of an illness he contracted during a business trip to South America. He was a member of the New York banking firm of Bennett, Bolster, and Coghill, and Madge inherited more than $500,000 when he died. She remarried in 1934 to William B. Hanley Jr., who was an actor and a radio personality. By this time, Madge had retired from show business. But she was coaxed back to the screen in 1952 by George Cukor for a small role in his film The Marrying Kind at the insistence of screenwriter Ruth Gordon. And after that, she appeared in a number of films and television programs, including Houseboat, A Nice Little Bank That Should Be Robbed, The Catered Affair, and Lust for Life. Did, uh, did you have a good morning in the fields, Vincent? I can, Yati. Do you feel the drawings going well? You work so hard and, well, I can't help noticing that you go over and over your drawings and often as not, you throw them away. What Mother means is, we'd hate to see, see you keep struggling, Vincent, only to realize in the end it was just another failure. Maybe he could visit Cousin Mauve in The Hague. He's a successful artist. Ask him his opinion of your drawings. I'm sure he'd be glad to help you. On television, she appeared in the science fiction theater episode, The Unexplored, the Twilight Zone episode on Thursday We Leave for Home, The Odd Couple, and in a semi-regular role as Aunt Martha on Leave it to Beaver. This is from the episode Beaver's Short Pants. My knees are cold. Why, when my brothers were your age, they wore trousers like that winter and summer. Uh, shall I send these, madam? I think not. You may uh, dispose of them. I'd be delighted to, madam. Wait a minute. I've got something in the pocket. Good heavens, what is that? Just a dead goldfish. <laughs> Me and Wally are going to give it a funeral. Uh, yes. You may make out a bill for that. Uh, yes, madam. Theodore, I think you look very nice. <laughs> I feel funny. Almost like I have no clothes on at all. She continued acting in films on up into the 1970s, appearing in such now-classic films as They Shoot Horses, Don't They?, The Day of the Locust, and Marathon Man. While filming Marathon Man, which was her last appearance, she said, When you're no longer the love interest, you can play anything. If you have a good seat on a broomstick, you can make a good witch. She is in five total episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents and one episode of the Alfred Hitchcock Hour. Her next is a little ways down the line, A True Account, episode 34 of season four. And she has one other connection to Alfred Hitchcock. She has a small role as Mrs. Finley in North by Northwest. Does anyone know this Thornhill? 
No, not me. Never heard of it. Professor? Apparently, the poor sucker got mistaken for George Kaplan. How can he get mistaken for George Kaplan when George Kaplan doesn't even exist? Don't ask me how it happened. Obviously, it happened. Van Damme's men must have grabbed him, tried to put him away, using Lester Townsend's house. And the unsuspecting Mr. Townsend winds up with a stray knife in his back. Say, Laguerre. So horribly sad, how is it I feel like laughing? What are we going to do? Do? About Mr. Thornhill. We, uh, we do nothing. Madge Kennedy died in 1987 at the age of 96. So Mr. Crabtree shows up at the office provided for him by his mysterious employer, and he is pleased to see written on the door is Crabtree Affiliated Reports. He enters to find a small office. with a big window right behind the desk. A window that opens as windows used to do in high rises to reveal that he is way up there. Looking a little bit squeamish about it all, he closes the window and takes a seat in what looks like a very comfortable chair. He unlocks the desk drawer pulls out some paper with a letterhead that reads Crabtree Affiliated Reports, Room 2050, Chapman Building, New York 16, New York, with a telephone number, Plaza 9, 7500. That is all we see of his work activity as we crossfade back to his apartment. I can't explain it exactly. It's like working in a vacuum all these weeks, and I really don't know what I'm doing. I'm sure there's a good reason for it, dear. Take those reports. Amalgamated. Steady as a rock. Efficiency instruments. Exploring new techniques. Universal this or that. I can't make head or tail out of it. Well, your work must be satisfactory or you've heard from him. Well, sometimes I wonder if he even remembers I'm there. I have a feeling that I'm just a name on a payroll. And someday, someone is going to ask, who is this man Crabtree? Why are we paying him $100 a week? And nobody will know the answer. It could be he'd be better off if that turned out to be the case. But it doesn't. As the very next day, when he returns to work, he finds someone else in his office. Come in, Mr. Crabtree. And shut the door, please. Oh, yes, yes, of course. I seem to have startled you. Why, yes, I, uh, uh, what are you doing here? Who are you? I think that should be quite obvious. I'm your employer. The last time these two men spoke, we saw Crabtree's rather expressive face and only the back of the head of his employer. 
Now, as they meet face to face, we're in the same situation. The camera is behind the employer, and we again just see the back of his head as Crabtree faces him, and we see Crabtree's very expressive face, which gives us a look of astonishment and shock, leading us with that great episode title music into the commercial. When we return from the commercial, we have the same camera set up. We're still behind the employer's head, and it isn't until he says, You seem surprised, Mr. Crabtree, that he turns so that we can see him. But even as we can now see both men, oftentimes Crabtree just sees the back of his employer's head. His employer does not make eye contact at all during the preliminaries. He looks at the picture on the desk. We find out later it's a picture of Laura. He opens the window, looks outside for a bit, closes the window, finally goes over and removes his hat. During this time, he tells Crabtree that he has not read his reports and has in fact burned them. Stunned, Crabtree responds to this. But I, I don't understand. You, you must be joking. And it is only at that point that his employer turns and looks him in the eye as he says, If you knew me a little better, Mr. Crabtree, you'd realize that I'm almost totally devoid of a sense of humor. That's one of the penalties of devoting one's entire energies to accumulating a vast fortune. So what is this all about? Again, the employer looks away from Crabtree. And as he talks, he picks up a pot of glue and sniffs it. He picks up the scissors and snips them. And he is as impassive as ever. While Crabtree reveals all of his emotions on his face throughout all of this. Pleasure when he's complimented. Concern. And then when we finally get to the gist, shock and horror. Incredible as it may sound, Mr. Crabtree, I need you. That is, I need a loyal, conscientious employee to handle an important assignment. Oh, then you're not going to terminate my services. That depends entirely on you. If this assignment is completed successfully, you'll receive one year's salary in advance and no more reports to mail. One year's salary? Why, that's more than $5,000. And 5000 would mean a great deal to you and your wife. <laughs> It certainly would. It would mean that she could have her operation. I, uh, I hope you will consider me for this assignment, sir. Excellent. I rather thought you would, Mr. Crabtree. And here he once again looks Crabtree in the eye. I want you to kill a man for me. Crabtree's response, after wondering if his employer, who never jokes, is joking, is to tell him that he's not capable of doing such a thing. And when he tells him that, he turns away. And we now see the back of his head. But his employer won't have anything of that. I was led to believe that had you not been restrained, you would have murdered the personnel manager for Stone Baker. So now we find out that the fact that Crabtree lost control at his previous job was not a negative, but a positive for this employer. Which is a nice touch by Robert C. Dennis. And this comment forces Crabtree to turn back around. So we see him from the front again. But that was different. I lost control of myself for the moment. I envy you, Mr. Crabtree. I deeply envy you. You have emotions. I am entirely devoid of feeling. Then, uh, and why don't you kill this man yourself? What follows is another five minutes plus of these two men in this small room, with the camera finding them in close-ups or in two shots, where Crabtree is looking at the back of his employer's head so that we see the back of the head, 
or he's looking at the back of his employer's head. So we see the front of the employer's head. And the employer only looks him in the eye at certain moments. He first of all explains that he can't kill this man himself because this man is the husband of his wife, whom they both thought was dead. The man has returned and has been blackmailing them for five years. The employer can't afford to have anyone discover that his wife has been a bigamist, even unintentionally, and that his children are illegitimate. So he looks Crabtree in the eye and tells him, No, Mr. Crabtree, this man must be eliminated by someone not even remotely connected to him. Obviously, that cannot be me. The employer goes to the window and looks out, showing the back of his head to Crabtree once again, and Crabtree threatens to go to the police, which brings us to another moment when the employer looks Crabtree in the eye. Why, if I told them the proposition you gave My me... My dear Mr. Crabtree, what could you possibly tell them? You don't know who I am or where I come from. As far as you're concerned, I don't even exist. But the advertisements you put in the paper. Anonymously. It's true that Box 111 could be traced to me, but I failed to see any connection. Any connection? Well, you hired me. I wrote a letter of application. Did you, Mr. Crabtree? Yes. Then you were informed by letter that the position had already been filled. A copy of my replies in my files, in case the matter should come up. But this office, the furnishings, the magazine subscriptions, you paid for them. By mail, in your name, in cash. And if you're thinking of Miss Brown as a witness, she was never my secretary. Like myself, she never really existed. And when Crabtree brings up the reports... To be sure, reports. A completely useless jumble of words, which for some unknown reason you persisted in sending to me, despite my letter that I had no use for this service. Visualize the scene, if you will, Mr. Crabtree. You go to the authorities. You tell them your incredible story. As proof, you have your pathetic little reports and nothing else. Why, you'd be fortunate not to be committed to an institution for the mentally deranged. And at this point, the tables have turned. The employer now looks Crabtree full in the face, but Crabtree does not look at him as the employer lays out the murder plan. You will notice that this office, chosen after much searching, is so small, so narrow, that anyone not sitting behind the desk must necessarily stand where I am now. Directly behind me is the window overlooking the street, 20 stories below. One hard shove, and it will be over. You make it sound so easy. I assure you it will be. The gentleman in question will be in the office first thing tomorrow morning. He will request a contribution to a good cause. He will take this envelope from the drawer and hand it to him. He's a methodical man. Not once in the past 18 months has he bothered to open the envelope on receiving it. He will put it in his inside coat pocket. At that precise moment, Mr. Crabtree, you will shove him out. Then you close the window and go back to your reports. Here, finally, Crabtree looks at his employer. But the police are certain to come here. And we finish the scene with the two men looking at each other, all pretense fallen perhaps finally on the same page of understanding, with only Crabtree occasionally looking down or looking away, his face etched with worry and sadness. Of course. And they will draw the only possible conclusion. The unfortunate man leaped from the roof above you. They'll know it's suicide. 
Because that envelope you hand him will contain not money, Mr. Crabtree, but a tight note explaining why he took his own life. You have until tomorrow morning to decide. If you carry out this assignment, I shall mail the money to your home. If you do not, you'll never see or hear of me again. Of course, your salary will automatically cease. For your wife's sake, Mr. Crabtree, I think you'll have to do it. So again, we have a couple of changes here made by Robert C. Dennis. One is that the murder won't take place until the next day. So Crabtree has time to go home, listen to his wife, asking him to come to bed. Because she says, all unaware of how heartbreaking this line is. You need your wrist. You won't be any good at the office tomorrow. And worry about what will happen to her if he refuses. The other is the whole idea of getting a lump sum, apparently in cash, in the mail after the murder is done. This is an ingenious inclusion by Dennis that allows us to have somewhat of a happy ending. So let's get to that ending. But first, let's look at Lauren Green. He was born Lion Hyman Green in Ottawa, the son of Daniel and Dora Green, recent immigrants from what is now Belarus. Lyon had an older brother who died in 1918 in the flu epidemic. His father owned a shoe repair shop behind the family home. In her memoir, Linda Green Bennett, daughter of Lorne Green, says that her father recalled being set up with a shoeshine stand by his father in the center of town at the age of 11 or 12. His family was Jewish, and Lorne, who was called Chaim at home, grew up speaking Yiddish. He went to Queen's University in Ontario, and he started as a chemical engineering student. But he then switched to being a language major, and he spent a lot of his free time acting and working at the campus radio station. Upon graduation, he got a job with the CBC, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, and he was assigned during World War II as the principal newsreader on the CBC National News. The CBC called him the Voice of Canada, but because part of his job was to read the list of soldiers killed in the war, many people started to refer to him as the Voice of Doom. While still in Canada, he managed a mail-order announcer school, and one of his pupils was actor Leslie Nielsen. He moved to New York in 1950, and he appeared on Broadway and in films, often playing a villain, as he does here. He was Beethoven in You Are There, and the prosecutor in the film Peyton Place. And then, in 1959, he took on the role that defined most of his career. Ben Cartwright, Paw, in 430 episodes of Bonanza. Look at it, Adam. East thine eyes and a sight that approacheth heaven itself. 
You've been to a lot of places and you've seen a lot of things, Pa. But you never seen or been to heaven. Well, maybe I've never been to heaven. Maybe I'm never going to get the chance. But heaven is going to have to go some to beat the thousand square miles of the Ponderosa. With that, he became one of the great Western heroes of 1960s TV, allowing him to do things like record Western music, including a song that reached number one on the charts, Ringo. He lay face down on the desert sand, clutching a six-gun in his hand. Shot from behind, I thought he was dead, for under his heart was an ounce of lead. But a spark still burned, so I used my knife, and late that night, I saved the life of Ringo. Ringo, Ringo. He also built a duplicate of the Ponderosa House in 1960 in Mesa, Arizona. Lorne was on Bonanza for 14 years until 1973. Here's a tidbit from MeTV.com. Many of the minor stunts were easily handled by the cast while they were filming. On a filming day like any other, Green was expected to perform a small stunt. He was to leap from a ledge hanging over a pond, which was about five feet deep. On cue, Green leapt over the edge feet first into the pool, completely disappearing under the water. Before Green could resurface, castmate Michael Landon claims he only saw a small tuft of hair float to the surface. Green's hairpiece had come completely off during the dive and reached the surface before Green. Before anyone could worry, a hand reached up from the water and snatched the floating toupee, bringing it down to the depths. A moment later, Green emerged, sopping wet and wig slightly askew. According to castmate Michael Landon, Green, who was particular about being seen without his toupee, walked past the crew, all trying to conceal chuckles, and straight into his trailer. Green was in good company. Landon was the only Cartwright actor who did not wear a hairpiece. Pernell Roberts and Dan Blocker both wore toupees, too. In 1977, Lorne played the slave owner, John Reynolds, in the miniseries Roots. In 1978, he took on the role of Commander Adama in the first version of the television series Battlestar Galactica. Mr. President, our patrol is under attack. We don't know by whom. As a precautionary measure, I would like to launch intercept fighters. Well, I should think that's highly inadvisable in view of the delicacy of our situation. You're quite right, Baltar. Commander, as a precautionary measure, I insist upon restraint. If this turns out to be an encounter with some outlaw traffic, we could jeopardize the whole cause of peace by displaying fighters when we are so close to our rendezvous. Mr. President, two of my starfighters are under armed attack. By forces unknown, you are not to launch until the situation is more clear. Sir, may I at least urge you to bring the fleet to a state of alert? I will consider that. Thank you, Commander. He reprised that role in 1980 in Galactica 1980. In 1981, he was Battalion Chief Joe Rorchek in the television series Code Red. In 1982, he was the voice of the Wizard in an animated version of The Wizard of Oz. And in 1986, he appeared in the film Vasectomy, A Delicate Matter. Throughout a lot of this time, he also was the voice and face of Alpo Dog Food. Oh, oh, yeah. I love this old dog. He's 15. That's 105 for you and me. He's an Alpo dog. 
Alpo's helped keep him healthy and happy for 15 years. Like Alpo Beef Chunks Dinner. Meat byproducts, beef, and balanced nutrition. That's all a dog ever needs to eat. Maybe Colonel's been around so long because uh, Alpo's been around so long. What do you say, Colonel? In 1987, he signed to appear in a TV movie entitled Bonanza, The Next Generation, which was going to include his daughter Jillian, who later married director Sam Raimi, and Michael Landon Jr. But he died of pneumonia following abdominal surgery before filming began on September 11th of that year, at the age of 72. One day later, September 12th, 1987, John Quaylen died. He was 87. This is the only appearance for Lorne Green in Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Back in his apartment, Mr. Crabtree, still trying to make a decision on this moral quandary, asked his wife how she felt today. Oh, I'm feeling a little better every day. Dr. Foley's coming tomorrow. Do you think I should ask him when I ought to go to the hospital? Dear? Yes, Laura? What do you think? I think you might ask him. So Crabtree has made his decision. And now we come to the conclusion, in which we'll have four new characters introduced to us in the last five minutes. We begin with Mr. Crabtree back in his office, opening his window, having second thoughts, and closing it again. He puts the envelope on the table. Then he looks at the picture, which we finally see is indeed a picture of Laura, and he puts it face down. He goes and opens the window again, seems to be having second thoughts again, and gets ready to close it when there's a knock at the door. Remember the last knock at the door we had in this episode? It was when the Crabtrees were waiting for Miss Brown, and they were both so happy and excited when that knock came. Now with this knock, Crabtree is sad, scared, and seemingly resigned. But that fear and resignation soon turns to anger. Oh, Mr. Crabtree? Yes? Uh, I was hoping you'd like to make a contribution. Yes, I have it ready for you. Well, that's... That's mighty good of you, Mr. Crabtree. And uh, I'd like to tell you that... Don't tell me anything. Just get out of here, quickly, before I... It's parasites like you who should be exterminated. Oh, now, look here. You, you have, have any idea what you've done? You've taken away my job. I was out of work for a year. One whole year, through no fault of my own, because of a stupid little man who... And now you're ruining me and my wife. She'll be an invalid as long as she lives. Why, somebody ought to have the nerve to. I wish I could. I, I didn't. I, I, ah! Now, when Crabtree talks to his employer later, he denies killing the man, saying it was an accident. And it was, I suppose. He doesn't touch the man. But he certainly stands up and intimidates him with his anger and scares the man into backing up so that he falls out the window and dies. This is exactly what the Lorne Green character is hoping for. This is why he hires this man, because of his rage. So yes, Mr. Crabtree is really a murderer here, much as he may want to say that he isn't. 
Now, the employer is watching from outside, and he sees a man fall from the window and assumes that Mr. Crabtree has fulfilled his part of the bargain. So he pulls out an envelope that we see close up, which is addressed to Mr. H.M. Crabtree. This is the first time we've gotten any sense of what Mr. Crabtree's first name might be. What do you suppose that H.M. stands for? Highly motivated? Hot-headed murderer? And he lives at 842 West 49th Street in New York. The employer mails the envelope. Then he goes to a phone booth, which looks like the same booth he was in when he initially contacted Mr. Crabtree at the beginning of the episode. Again, as before, we see the back of his head, but that is no longer necessary, so he soon turns in profile as he calls Mr. Crabtree's office. Just like with the first phone call, we initially only hear Crabtree's side of the conversation, and then the employer joins in. Hello. But I didn't. It was, uh, you don't understand. I'm not concerned with your rationalizations, Mr. Crabtree. You've completed the assignment. That's all that interests me. Your year's salary is in the mail. You'll never hear from me again. Congratulations. Goodbye. We get a dissolve to later when the police show up. A uniformed policeman and a plainclothes detective. Detective Grant, I'd like to talk to you for a minute if we can. Yes. There's been an accident. A man fell from this building and was killed. Have you been in all morning? I always get here at 9 o'clock. I haven't left this office. The door was closed, I suppose. Yes, I never leave it open. And you didn't see anybody go up those stairs across the hall? No. Must have fallen right past this window. You didn't see it. Uh, I was working. I'm closing out the office. I very seldom look at the window anyway. It's closed. You probably wouldn't hear anything. Well, I guess that's all. Uh, was it suicide? All the way. He had a suicide note in his pocket. Sorry we bothered you. Well, that's quite all right. And that appears to be it. Except we're watching Alfred Hitchcock Presents. So if you aren't surprised by what's coming, I'm not surprised you're not surprised. Still, here it is. Our twist at the end which finishes with the music that the pie lady calls the Oh No You Didn't Sting. Mr. Crabtree, are you a reporter? Uh-uh. I came to pick up a contribution from a mutual friend. I don't think I have to mention any names. Well, what about it? Where's the money I was to pick up? The wrong man got it. You came too late. Only it wasn't money. It was your suicide note. Suicide? Look here, I'd like to know what's going on. That's something you'll have to take up with a man you're blackmailing. And if he asks for me, tell him I no longer work here. As far as he is concerned, I never existed. I like the line, the wrong man got it. It's a nice moment of serendipity. I don't think there's anything intentional in it, because the film The Wrong Man is still more than a year away. And I like his conclusion, playing it back on his employer. As far as he's concerned, I never existed. But there are still problems with this. Before we get to those problems, let's look at those four men that showed up in rapid succession at the end. First, the poor guy asking for the contribution, who ended up falling out the window, was played by John Harmon. He was born Johann Hermann Legler, and his career spanned over 60 years and nearly 300 movie and television credits. He is in The Adventures of Superman, 
Perry Mason as a fingerprint expert, the Whistler episode Letters from Aaron Burr, the film Conflict with Humphrey Bogart. This lady wearing a hat. Yes, sir. What color was it? Was it green? I think so. Just a plain hat. Nothing on it. Nothing. Yeah. Yeah, there was one thing on it. What? A feather. Kind of a big feather. You're lying. You either kidnapped her or killed her. Well, don't just stand there staring at me. Do something. Make him tell where she is. Beat it out of him. Take him out. Come on. Let's go. Two episodes of The Twilight Zone, The Dummy, and of late, I think, of Cliffordville. Seven episodes of Bonanza, Charlie Chaplin's film, Monsieur Verdoux. Come, I want you to meet some friends of mine. Uh, Vicky, this is Captain Bonheur. I forgot your married name. Darman. Just call me Vicky. Uh, this is Joe Darman, her husband. How do you do? Well, we'll blow. I beg your pardon, I mean beat it. <laughs> oh, uh, pleased to meet you, Captain. Uh, uh, Bonaire is your name. Bonaire. Well, then all I can say is bonsoir. <laughs> Cyrano de Bergerac, episodes of The Wild Wild West, The Real McCoys, The Man from Uncle, Here's Lucy, The FBI, I Dream of Jeannie, Green Acres, The Invaders, and The Mod Squad. He may be best known, though, for his role as Teppo in the Star Trek episode, A Piece of the Action. Is that right? All right. All right. All right. Now the Federation's taking over, whether you like it or not. You people, you've been running this planet like a piecework factory. From now on, it's going to be under one roof. You're going to run it like a, like a business and that means you're going to make a profit. Yeah. And what's your percentage? I'm cutting the Federation in for 40%. You got any objections? Yeah. I hear a lot of talk, but all I see here is you and a couple of your boys. I don't see no Federation. His last project, The Naked Monster, was released in 2005, 20 years after his death because it took 21 years to complete. In his later years, John Harmon became a used book dealer, and he specialized in collecting first editions of Mark Twain. He is in one other episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, Your Witness, episode 31 of season four. And John Harmon died in 1985 at the age of 80. The two policemen were played by Parley Bear and Paul Brinegar. Parley Bear was Detective Grant, and he began his show business career as a circus ringmaster. He left to join the Army Air Force to serve in World War II, and he earned seven service stars. In 1946, he met and married circus aerialist and bareback rider Ernestine Clark. Ernestine's father, Ernie Clark, was the first person to complete the triple somersault on the trapeze. They were married for 54 years until her death in 2000. In the 1930s, he served as director of special events for radio station KSL. His first network show was The Whistler, but he soon started appearing on all sorts of radio programs, including Escape, Suspense, Tales of the Texas Rangers, Dragnet, and Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar, and, of course, playing Chester on the radio version of Gunsmoke. 
sure is hot today, Mr. Dillon. Yeah. Used to get hotter in Sweetwater, though. Texas? Yes, sir. But I wasn't there very long. No. <laughs> what'd you do there, Chester? Oh, I was a salesman, Mr. Dillon. Salesman? <laughs> well, what'd you sell? Lightning rods. Lightning? Oh. Well, now, they're good things to have, Mr. Dillon. Why, I had a line of well, lightning rods. Well, don't explain you... it to me, Chester. <laughs> Too hot. In spite of all of his appearances on television, in the thriller episode Child's Play, the Outer Limits episode Behold Eck, the 1980s Twilight Zone episode, The Storyteller, and his last credit, Star Trek Voyager, Parley is probably best known for that role as Chester. According to Wikipedia, he considered it his finest and most memorable role, and he often said it was the one he found most fulfilling. There is another character that he voiced that is also very familiar, and that is Ernie Keebler, the elf, in the Keebler cookie commercials. Hey! Careful with that budge. Sorry, Ernie. It's the rookie's first time covering cookies. Do I have to use so much fudge? We're elves. We always use lots. Lots of rich, creamy fudge makes our good Keebler cookies taste even more uncommonly good. Keep your eye on a cookie, kid. Making Keebler fudge-covered cookies takes lots of fudge. And lots of practice. Fudge sticks, fudge stripes, fudge marshmallows, and deluxe Grahams from Keebler. In 1969, Parley gave the eulogy at Howard McNear's funeral. Howard had been Doc on the radio version of Gunsmoke, but he was best known for being Floyd the Barber on The Andy Griffith Show. Parley also appeared on The Andy Griffith Show. He was Mayor Roy Stoner. I want the prisoner to serve his full time. Is that clear? Is that clear? Yes, Mayor. Very clear. This is his only episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents and Parley Bear died in 2002 at the age of 88. Now, Paul Brinegar, as you may have noticed, has no lines in his role as the uniformed policeman. But that's okay. He had some lines the last time we saw him. He was the cab driver in episode number two, Premonition. And I think we talked about him a little bit then. So we'll wait and see if he has any lines in his third and last appearance, The Night the World Ended, episode 31 of season two. Malcolm Atterbury played the real blackmailer. Here's what IMDb says about him. Philadelphia native Malcolm Atterbury was born into a wealthy family. His father was president of the Pennsylvania Railroad, but he himself had no desire to go into the family business. He had always wanted to be an actor, and to that end got himself a job managing a radio station. From there, he went into vaudeville, then into stage work in both musicals and dramas, gaining a reputation as a solid and reliable stage actor. He made his film debut in Dragnet, 1954. Although he soon became a busy supporting actor in films, he still kept his hand in the theater world. He owned two theaters in upstate New York. A versatile actor, he could play anything from a priest to a senator to a hotel clerk to a gunfighter to a cranky, cantankerous old codger. His last film was Emperor of the North, 1973. Now, to be more specific about that, he actually was the stepson of William Wallace Atterbury. He was the son of Malcolm McLeod and Arminia Clara Rosengarten McLeod, and his mother married William Wallace Atterbury after his father's death. In the mid-1930s, after he decided to pursue a career in drama, he enrolled at Hilda Spong's Dramatic School using an assumed name, 
After he revealed his true identity, he went on to finance a summer theater for the Hildespong Players, and they asked him to be their managing director. The two theaters he owned and operated were the Tamarack Playhouse in Lake Pleasant, New York, and the Albany Playhouse Company in Albany. There, he provided opportunities for Grace Kelly, Kirk Douglas, Carl Malden, Cliff Robertson, Barbara Cook, and Tom Bosley. He appeared on Broadway in the original cast of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and he is in lots of movies and television episodes, including I Was a Teenage Werewolf, Blood of Dracula, Summer and Smoke, Advising Consent, and Seven Days in May as the White House physician. When did you have your last vacation, Mr. President? When I was six months old, back in Cleveland, Ohio. I believe it. Don't forget your CIA appointment at two. Lone Liverman. Tell him to meet me here. Assuming I'll be alive after lunch. The White House physician makes no such assumption. Your blood pressure's up again, Mr. President. I don't like it one little bit. Now, this is an order, not just medical advice. You're to go away for at least two weeks. Two weeks? And you can have damn few phone calls. How about a compromise, Doris? I'll take a quick swim in my pool. He's in two episodes of The Twilight Zone, No Time Like the Past, and a very memorable role as Henry J. Fate in Mr. Denton on Doomsday. I can't use anything. How's that? I can't use anything. You're a peddler, aren't you? Oh, yes. Dealer in everything. Utensils, herbs, medicine, liniments and tonics, farm implements, clothing, and potions. Oh, yes, potions. Kind of a sideline, you might say. Fate's the name. Henry J. Fate. And you're Al Denton, and you're running away. You shouldn't, you know. You shouldn't run away. I shouldn't. Yeah, I guess you're right. I shouldn't run away. I should stay here and get shot to death. I guess that's what I should do. Curse this thing. Curse the moment I found it. No, no, no. Don't curse it, Mr. Denton. Use it. Here. This is one of my potions. You might call it that, or an elixir. Either way, it'll help solve your problem, Mr. Denton. I call that my fast gun developer. Man who drinks that becomes the fastest of the fast. He'll be able to shoot a hole through a silver dollar in midair at 100 feet or better without even aiming. It's guaranteed to last for 10 seconds. Malcolm has two small but memorable roles in two Hitchcock films. He is Deputy Al Malone in The Birds. Were the kids bothering the birds or something? Because if you make any kind of a disturbance near them, they just come after you. Al, the children are playing a game. Those gulls are tacked. Now, Lydia, tact's a pretty strong word, don't you think? I mean, birds just don't go around attacking people without no reason, you know what I mean? Kids probably scared them, that's all. These birds are tacked. But his more memorable role is as the man waiting for the bus in the middle of nowhere in North by Northwest. Hot day. Seen worse. Are you supposed to be meeting someone here? Waiting for the bus. Do any minute. Oh. Some of them crop duster pilots get rich. They live long enough. 
Then, uh, then your name isn't Kaplan. Can't say it is, because it ain't. Here she comes, right on time. That's funny. What? That plane's dusty props where there ain't no props. And we all know what that line leads to, don't we? This is his only appearance in Alfred Hitchcock Presents, and Malcolm Atterbury died in 1992 at the age of 85. On CompleteHitchcock.com, Jeff notes, Yes, the ending is a bit obvious, but it's all parceled out neatly, the only jarring note being that an innocent man has to die in order to provide a measure of justice for the other characters. And that is certainly a problem, because John Harmon's character does indeed die for no reason except to provide a means for Mr. Crabtree to get $5,000 to continue his wife's medical treatments. But will he even be able to keep that $5,000? Now, I'm not one who usually bothers to extend the episode past its ending, but in this case, I can't help but wonder, wouldn't Lorne Green's character figure out a way to get that money back? Crabtree may not know who his employer is, but his employer certainly knows who he is. And his employer is soon going to find out not only that Mr. Crabtree didn't do the job, but that he has told the real blackmailer that the man he is blackmailing has just tried to kill him. Just finishing it all off by saying, I don't exist, doesn't work. Still, Robert C. Dennis has done a nice job of ironing out some of the wrinkles in Mary Orr and Reginald Denham's previous teleplay. So let's take a look at that. And now, Suspense. Help Wanted, first broadcast June 14, 1949, on the Suspense television program, starring Otto Kruger and produced and directed by our old friend Robert Stevens. Good morning. Oh, Mrs. Griffin, has the mail come? There's nothing for you, Miss Crabtree. Oh, well, I suppose the rest of these applications will be just so much chaff in the wind, too. Well, that's what I came in about. I was wondering if we could have a little talk. Yes, I know. The rent, eh? More serious than that. Eh? I've decided I need to talk with Mr. Crabtree, so please take this as two weeks' notice. So in this version, Mr. Crabtree, who gets a first name, although no one ever uses it, it's on the front door of his office, Chester. He is about to be evicted because he's out of work and he can't pay his rent. But this Mr. Crabtree isn't married. Instead, he has a daughter who is ill, and he's paying her sanitarium expenses, which is eating up any money that he would use for his rent. So he is at his wit's end. He's going to lose his home. His daughter's going to lose her medical treatments. And a woman shows up at the door. There's no phone call from the employer this time. She tells him her name is unimportant. She offers him this job at $100 a week. Then we get a scene where she is on the phone. And any ideas that we have that this job is legitimate are quickly dispelled. Hello, darling. Is it, is it all right for me to talk? Good. I just couldn't wait to tell you. It went off perfectly. My dear, he's ideal just exactly what we've been looking for. I put on such a marvelous performance, he hasn't any idea it isn't a bona fide job. Yes. Yes, I'll phone the building right away and tell him to put his name on the office door. 
Note that there's no mention of Crabtree losing his temper, of assaulting a previous employer, anything like that. That's all Robert C. Dennis is doing. And the reason why Robert C. Dennis adds that to his teleplay is pretty obviously that he doesn't like the way the first man asking for a contribution falls out the window in this version. I'll get to that in a bit. So Chester goes to his office, and there were a few plot points that exist in this version that Robert C. Dennis gets rid of in his version. First of all, the table and the chairs are bolted down, which ensures that whoever comes into the room has to stand right by the window. Though I can't really imagine sitting at a chair and doing work for six months when you can't move it closer to the desk. I guess Robert C. Dennis couldn't imagine that either. Then there is a cat with a note in his collar in the office awaiting Mr. Crabtree. He reads the note. Please, please feed me. My function is to keep you company so that you will not be tempted to chatter to friends on the telephone. <laughs> uh, my name is Discretion. Well, Discretion, it's lucky for you that I'm partial to cats, that I'm not one of those silly people who are terrified of them. We'll be great companions. Uh-oh, that sounds like a plot point. There's no reason for this cat to be here except for that plot point. This business of keeping him from talking on the phone is just silly. Mr. X, as he calls himself in this version, really doesn't care less, I would assume, what Crabtree is doing in his job. The last plot point is a letter that Chester receives after being there for six months on the day everything's going to happen and it asks him for a contribution to bring back the 18th Amendment. There's again sort of a silliness factor to that that clearly Robert C. Dennis didn't like. But it does answer one of the questions that Robert C. Dennis ignores. So we'll get to that in a bit. Shortly after Chester reads that letter, his employer, Mr. X, shows up. And there's three things I'd like to highlight from this. First of all, Mr. X has a reason why he has given this busy work to Chester, besides just to have him have some sort of work. He says, It comes as a shock to you to discover that their real function is to lull you into a state of security. Hmm? False security. And this is somewhat of a remnant from the short story, where we don't have a sick daughter or a sick wife. Instead, we have a man who has grown used to his job, who loves his job, and doesn't want to lose it. Second, Why don't you do it yourself? I am totally incapable of committing any act of violence. Why, if a fly should land in the palm of that hand... I lack the force to crush the life out of it. This is another remnant from the short story that Robert C. Dennis wisely rejects. Far better to have a steely, unemotional employer who would gladly do the job himself if he could get away with it. And third, Chester is not offered a lump sum if he completes the task. Rather, If I am never blackmailed again, I shall know that you have carried out your function as my employee. You will become one of my confidential supporters, and you will retire at the age of 65 with a generous pension for life. There's one big problem with this, and it's why Robert C. Dennis changes it. Once Mr. X finds out that the blackmailer is still alive, Chester is out of a job with no means to support his daughter. Let's get back to those two previous plot points, because unless Chester has decided to actually push the man out the window, 
there isn't any particular reason why he would fall out that window, seeing as this particular Mr. Crabtree does not have that tendency towards anger and violence. So how does it happen? I am hoping, sir, to obtain a contribution from you. Sir, it is my... I, I know. I know. I... I have it here. Thank you. That's most satisfactory. Do you mind if I open it? Oh, no, no, you're I not. Can't. You're... Keep him away from me. Cats terrify me. Please don't let him come near me. Please keep him away from me. Well, that's rather silly and rather badly done, too, I might add. No wonder Robert got rid of that. But then there's the explanation from the police detective, who is played by our old friend George Matthews. One thing, who was this person? Oh, some reformer. He'd been going through the building trying to solicit contributions to revive the 18th Amendment. <laughs> well, it takes all kinds to make a world. And I'm sorry Robert eliminated that from his teleplay though I'm sure he could have come up with a better contribution than to revive the 18th Amendment. Because without setting that up, it just seems like too much of a coincidence. Okay, so that's the first teleplay, based on the short story by Stanley Ellen. So what about that short story? Ah, but first, let's look at Mary Orr and Reginald Denham. They were married at the time of this teleplay, and they wrote a number of things together in their careers. Four plays that appeared on Broadway, Wallflower, Round Trip, Dark Hammock, and Be Your Age. Mary Orr was born Marianne Caswell, and she is actually best known for her short story, The Wisdom of Eve, which was the basis for the film All About Eve. She didn't receive a screen credit, but she did receive a Screenwriters Guild Award for her original story. And later, she and Reginald Denham adapted the short story into a play, which was produced off-Broadway. In 1970, the hit Broadway musical Applause appeared, and it was also based on All About Eve. And they gave credit to Mary for the original story. And she wrote a sequel entitled More About Eve, which was published in Cosmopolitan in 1951. Reginald Denham was born in London. He was mostly a director of Broadway theater, spanning from 1929 to 1966. Mary Orr was his third wife, and they stayed married until his death. He did do some acting with Sir Frank Benson's Shakespearean Company before World War I and with the Oxford Players starting in 1923, where he appeared in several plays by George Bernard Shaw. He wrote three other suspense episodes without Mary, The Suicide Club, Murder Through the Looking Glass, and Dead Earnest. And he also directed a version of Dial M for Murder on Broadway. Reginald Denham died in 1983 at the age of 89, and Mary Orr died in 2006 at the age of 95. This is the only Alfred Hitchcock Presents episode for both of them. Now, before we get to Stanley Ellen's short story, let's look at Stanley Ellen. In his introduction to one of the versions of his short story collection, The Specialty of the House, Stanley wrote of himself, At age three, I was shipped off in my mother's care to a boarding house in Lakewood, New Jersey to recuperate from some lingering ailment. In my earliest days, I was always recuperating from some lingering ailment or other, and this one must have been particularly interesting to have led to that hijera from Brooklyn to the remote wilderness of New Jersey, where, as everyone in my family knew, the fresh air alone 
was life-restoring. Stanley Ellen lived his entire life in Brooklyn, New York, aside from travel and some time spent in Miami Beach. To support his family, initially, he worked as a magazine salesman, a boilermaker's apprentice, a steel worker, a shipyard worker, a dairy farmer, and a junior college teacher. This was all before serving in the Army during World War II. His wife, Jean Michael, was a freelance editor. And after the war, he began writing full-time while his family lived on his service unemployment allowance and on the salary of his wife's editing. Lawrence Block has said, Ellen was a perfectionist, working slowly and deliberately, producing a page of typescript on a good day. He admitted to having rewritten the opening paragraph of a short story as many as 40 times before going on to the next paragraph and polishing each subsequent page in similar fashion before proceeding further. He managed only one a year, sent each in turn to Ellery Queen's Mystery Magazine, and never had one rejected. He also wrote some novels, and he co-wrote the screenplay for The Big Night, along with Joseph Losey, Hugo Butler, and Ring Lardner. And he wrote book reviews for the New York Times Book Review, as well as occasional essays for such publications as Writer and Armchair Detective. He won three Edgar Awards during his lifetime and was Grandmaster in 1981 of the Mystery Writers of America. His first story is his most famous story. The Specialty of the House won Ellery Queen Mystery Magazine Award for Best First Story, and it eventually becomes an episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, but not until episode 12 of season 5. His story, The Day of the Bullet, was reprinted in Alfred Hitchcock Mystery Magazine, September 2011. And his story, The Moment of Decision, is in the Alfred Hitchcock anthology, Stories They Wouldn't Let Me Do on TV. He is the source for eight Alfred Hitchcock Presents episodes in all. His next is The Orderly World of Mr. Appleby, episode 29, along with Robert C. Dennis and James Nielsen. And Stanley Ellen died in 1986 at the age of 69. The story is not called Help Wanted, but rather The Cat's Paw. Jack Seabrook says, The term Cat's Paw, which provides the story's title, may be traced back to a 15th century fable called The Monkey and the Cat by Jean de La Fontaine, and refers to a person who is used unwittingly by another to accomplish the other's purposes. That definition fits Crabtree's situation perfectly. So in the story, Mr. Crabtree is single, with no children, there is no one ill for whom he has to provide. He lives in a dingy, linoleum-floored, brass-bedsteaded uniformity, a boarding house, and he's out of work. Stanley Ellen writes, He felt party to a gross deception in implying that the telephone was his personal property, but the prestige to be gained this way, so he thought, might somehow weigh the balance in his favor. To that end, he tremorously sacrificed the unblemished principles of a lifetime. So we already find out on the first page that in his desperation to seek work, Mr. Crabtree is willing to compromise his principles. So Crabtree gets a call on that phone out in the hall that isn't actually his, and he's hired. There's no Miss Brown. He's just told what building to go to, where his office is, that the door will be open, and that the keys will be in the desk drawer. And, as Stanley Ellen writes, the work was soon part of him. He had ceased bothering with the type list. Every name on it was firmly imprinted in his mind. And there were restless nights when he could send himself off to sleep merely by repeating the list a few times. And then, one day, his employer shows up. In this case, his employer tells him, 
Let me be known to you as, say, George Spelvin. Have you ever encountered the ubiquitous Mr. Spelvin in your journeyings, Mr. Crabtree? I'm afraid not, said Mr. Crabtree miserably. Then you are not a playgoer, and that is all to the good. So what does that mean? Well, as Wikipedia says, George Spelvin, Georgette Spelvin, and Georgina Spelvin are traditional pseudonyms used in programs in American theater. The reasons for the use of an alternate name vary. Actors who do not want to be credited, or whose names would otherwise appear twice because they are playing more than one role in a production, may adopt a pseudonym. Actors who are members of Actors' Equity Association, but are working under a non-union contract and wish to avoid the significant penalties ranging from substantial fines to revocation of union membership, also use pseudonyms. In some plays, this name has appeared in cast lists as the name of an actor or actress portraying a character who is mentioned in the dialogue but never turns up on stage. With the role credited to George Spelvin, the audience is not forewarned that the character never makes an entrance. The name can also be used when one actor is playing what appears to be two characters, but is later revealed as being one person with two names or identities. This is especially useful in murder mysteries. And Wikipedia adds, Georgina Spelvin has fallen out of general use since it was adopted as a screen name by pornographic actress Shelley Graham, who was credited by that name in The Devil and Miss Jones and her subsequent films. As in the other versions, George Spelvin tells Mr. Crabtree that he needs him to murder a blackmailer. But in this case, it has nothing to do with a wife and bigamy or anything of that sort. It's just simply somebody who is in his way, and he is a prominent, wealthy businessman. So neither of these characters are whitewashed in the story. It's only in the transition to the teleplay by Mary Orr and Reginald Denham that Mr. Crabtree not only has sympathetic reasons for wanting to keep his job, but the George Spelfin character has sympathetic reasons for wanting to get rid of his blackmailer. And as in the later episodes, they have a conversation about the impending murder. Let me enlighten you, Mr. Crabtree. I have spent a pleasant and profitable share of my life in observing the human species, as a scientist might study insects under glass. And I have come to one conclusion, Mr. Crabtree, one above all others which has contributed to the making of my own success. I have come to the conclusion that to the majority of our species, it is the function that is important, not the motives nor the consequences. My advertisement, Mr. Crabtree, was calculated to enlist the services of one like that, a perfect representative of the type, in fact. From the moment you answered that advertisement to the present, you have been living up to all my expectations. You have been functioning flawlessly with no thought of either motive or consequence. Now murder has been made part of your function. I have honored you with an explanation of its motives. The consequences are clearly defined. Either you continue to function as you always have, or put it in a nutshell, you are out of a job. So it's the same method as in the later versions, the whole plan to push the blackmailer out the window. Mr. Spelvin says, the envelope will be in your desk, and at the moment of decision, you are free to act one way or the other. Free, said Mr. Crabtree. You said he would ask for the envelope. He will, he will indeed. But if you indicate that you know nothing about it, he will quietly make his departure and later communicate with me. And that will be, in effect, a notice of your resignation from my employ. Mr. Spelvin went to the door and rested one hand on the knob. 
However, he said, if I do not hear from him, that will assure me that you have successfully completed your term of probation and are to be henceforth regarded as a capable and faithful employee. But the reports, said Mr. Crabtree, you destroy them. Of course, said Mr. Spelvin, a little surprised. But you will continue with your work and send the reports to me as you have always done. I assure you, it does not matter to me that they are meaningless, Mr. Crabtree. They are part of a pattern, and your adherence to that pattern, as I have already told you, is the best assurance of my own security. And then the story skips the murder altogether and brings us to the police coming to Mr. Crabtree's door. After they question him and begin to take their leave, Mr. Crabtree says, Do you know who he was? Detective Sharp shrugged. Another guy with too many troubles. Young, good-looking, pretty snappy dresser. Only thing beats me is why a guy who could afford to dress like that would figure he has more troubles than he can handle. The policeman in uniform spoke for the first time. That letter he left, he said deferentially, sounds like he was a little crazy. You have to be a little crazy to take that way out, said Sharp. You're a long time dead, said the policeman heavily. Sharp held the doorknob momentarily. Sorry to bother you, he said to Mr. Crabtree, but you know how it is. Anyhow, you're lucky in a way. A couple of girls downstairs saw him go by and passed right out. He winked as he closed the door behind him. Mr. Crabtree stood looking at the closed door until the sound of heavy footsteps passed out of hearing. Then he seated himself in the chair and pulled himself closer to the desk. Some magazines and sheets of stationery lay there in mild disarray, and he arranged the magazines in a neat pile, stacking them so that all corners met precisely. Mr. Crabtree picked up his pen, dipped it into the ink bottle, and steadied the paper before him with his other hand. Efficiency Instruments Limited, he wrote carefully, shows increased activity. And then the real blackmailer comes in. No, actually he doesn't, because Mr. Crabtree has murdered the real blackmailer. The whole extra twist with two people looking for a contribution, is not in the short story. And the point is exactly that, that Crabtree has done what Mr. Spelvin wanted. He has killed the blackmailer. Not to save his wife, not to save his daughter, but to save his job. In his blog at Barebones Ezine, Jack Seabrook says, While the cat's paw is an excellent story, one may question the motives of the main characters. Is it believable that Crabtree, a single middle-aged man, would be willing to commit murder to keep a meaningless job? Can the reader accept his employer's motive for killing the blackmailer as one simply driven by greed? These issues were of interest when the story was adapted for television, both from the standpoint of dramatic believability and out of concern for the censors. And I think the censors have a big part of that. But to me, it's certainly more believable that he would actually just go ahead and do it to keep his job than it is to think that some guy who's afraid of cats would come into a room to get a contribution to bring back the 18th Amendment and back his way out of a window, or that two people in one day would show up asking for a contribution. The point here is, quite simply, what people would do to maintain the status quo, to maintain the comfort of their lives, to maintain the continuity of their lives. This type of question has come up just in recent months with the pandemic. No, there aren't people having to murder someone to keep their jobs, except possibly murdering themselves, as we've had people who have been told they have to go back to their jobs in meatpacking plants and other places when it may not be safe or else risk losing the job. And many of those people, I think probably most of those people, are going back to those jobs. Like Mr. Crabtree... They don't want to live in some dingy boarding house, struggling to find a job to make a living. They don't want to find a new job when they're used to and satisfied with their old job. 
and so they do things they probably shouldn't do to keep that job. Once you remove the starkness of that, once you put in that Mr. Crabtree has a daughter who's ill or a wife that's ill, once you add that he's not able to commit the murder and needs a cat or his anger to scare somebody out the window, you take away from the impact of what this story is saying. I understand why it's done, but it really lessens the power and the importance of the story. And once you add the complication of the blackmailer being the second person, as satisfying as that can be on one level, you really have taken what is an interesting, pointed story and just diluted it down into a potboiler. Still, having said all that, I enjoy the Hitchcock version quite a bit. There's some terrific acting in this episode, particularly by John Quaylen. And actually, Hitchcock himself does a very nice job of acting in his intro. And while I don't really care for the changes from the short story through the two versions, there is something satisfying about Mr. Crabtree telling the blackmailer that he doesn't exist and getting himself out of there with an already mailed $5,000. We still have some Hitch-written short stories and films for which he was title designer to look at. In Alfred Hitchcock, A Life in Darkness and Light, Patrick McGilligan writes, Hitch claimed two entries in the December 1920 telegraph. If the first seems a precursor to Abbott and Costello's Who's on First Shtick, the second is every bit as frivolous. So here's the first of those two, a shtick entitled What's Who? Now, said Jim, the proposal I have to put forward is a novel one. We yawned. Jim was the producer of our local amateur theatricals, you see, and beyond that description, it is not in my power to make further comment. Jim is twice my size. In the next show, each of you three, he continued, will impersonate each other. I gasped. Now you, Bill, he said to me, will be him, pointing to Sid. And Sid will be Tom, and Tom you. Then when, wait a minute, interposed Tom, let's get this clear. Now, I'm Sid. No, you're not. You're me. Well, who's you? You are, you fool. You're all getting into a muddle. Let me explain further, said Jim. Doesn't need any explanation, I replied. It's all as clear as Tom... What do you mean, interrupted he. If you're going to get personal about it, I'll chuck up being you before we start. All right, then. You be Sid, and I'll be you. But, yelled Sid, you said you were me. Well, so I am. You're not. You're him. Look here, broke in Tom. Let him be you, and you be me, and I'll be him. Shut up, screamed Jim above the din. Why don't you all stick to my first arrangement? All right, then, commenced Tom. I'll be Sid. No, you won't. I'll be Sid. But just now you said you were me. Shut up. He's you. Well, who's me? I don't know. Why, Sid is, of course, put in Jim. Now let's start. When, wait, said Tom. I can't be him. He's Bandy. Who's Bandy? You are, you fool. I'll punch your nose. Don't start scrap. Well, he, look at what. I'm not, you idiot. Jim fainted. In 1921, Hitch was the title designer for a crime film directed by Donald Crisp entitled The Princess of New York. An article in Picturegoer says, The famous Lasky British production, The Princess of New York, is not a notable offering although it boasts Cosmo Hamilton as author and Mary Glynn and David Powell as stars. The story is painfully conventional in theme and treatment, and little effort has been made to infuse new life into ancient dramatic situations. 
Mary Glynn is an American heiress who is besieged by unscrupulous fortune hunters, British. And David Powell is an Oxford undergraduate, the epitome of masculine virtue, who rescues her from the clutches of her pursuers. Some interesting Oxford backgrounds figure in the film, but the story is too obvious to be more than mildly entertaining. Others in the cast are Saba Raleigh, George Bellamy, Dorothy Fane, Ivo Dawson, Philip Hewland, and Wyndham Guise. That's all I can find on The Princess of New York, except, once again, like all the others we've talked about in these early days, the film is lost. But here's Hitch again talking to Francois Truffaut about his days in that editing department. Well, um, it was while I was in this department, you see, that I got acquainted with the writers and was able to study this the scripts Et que je pouvais étudier les scénarios. Oui. And out of that I learned Et de ça, j'ai appris comment écrire les scripts. Ah oui, c'est ça. Et même regarder les films de très près. And also to look at, examine the pictures from very close from inside. Sure. And not only that, if an extra scene was ça. wanted, Mais si fallait une scène extra, par I exemple, used to be sent out to shoot it. Euh, on m'envoyait le filmer. Ah oui. Not, not important, not acting scenes. Um, Pas des scènes où il fallait des acteurs. Oui, oui, des raccords, des, oui, Just, oui, des uh, transitions. Des small, transition scenes. Yes, yes. So in this department, I was able to learn quite a lot. Dans ce département, j'ai donc pu apprendre beaucoup de choses. Because one was learning the beginnings of a film. Parce qu'on apprenait les débuts d'un film. And the end of a film. Et la fin d'un film. Oui. You see? Now here's Hitch to close it out. No, just kidding. Here I am to close out the first part of the outro, because I have only the second part on my DVD. Our play is over, and we have now entered the sudden death overtime period of television. The game will end at any moment. So I must allow my sponsor to make a few points, after which I shall dribble back. Alfred Hitchcock presents Season 1, The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, Bonanza, the official first season, Lust for Life, North by Northwest, Leave it to Beaver, season one, The Wrong Man, The Young Philadelphians, Star Trek, the original series, season two, Conflict, Monsieur Verdoux, The Birds, The Twilight Zone, season one, and Seven Days in May are all available at the Ann Arbor District Library. The suspense episode, Help Wanted, Lauren Green singing Ringo, the clip from Battlestar Galactica, the Alpo commercial, the Gunsmoke radio episode, Never Pester Chester, the clip from The Andy Griffith Show, the Keebler cookie commercial, and the clip from the Hitchcock Truffaut interview are all available online. If you would like to contact me about this podcast, please email me at shirdsmaa at aadl.org. That's S-J-O-E-R-D-S-M-A-A at aadl.org. And please put Hitchcock somewhere in the subject heading. Next time, episode 28. Portrait of Jocelyn, starring Philip Abbott, Nancy Gates, and John Barragray. Now here's Hitch's closing narration 
as presented by Martin Grahams Jr. and Patrick Wickstrom in the Alfred Hitchcock Presents Companion, followed by Hitch himself as he appears on my DVD. A brilliant play. Sneaky, but brilliant. So nice to be with the winning team. And now please keep your eyes on this space, for I shall return here next week to bring you another story. Good night. A brilliant play. Sneaky, but brilliant. And now please keep your eyes on this space, for I shall return here next week to bring you another story. Good night.